The once mighty fortress of the Rock of Dunamace is dramatically perched on top of a steep limestone outcrop that towers above the low-lying plains of Leash. The earliest evidence of a fort at the Rock of Dunamace dates to the early medieval period, and the remains of a dry stone wall thought to date to this time can be found just north of the gatehouse on the site. During this early stage, the site was known as Dune Mask, and it is recorded in the Annals of Ireland that Vikings raided the site in 844 AD. They managed to fight their way past the defences, and in the ensuing melee, they murdered the abbot of Terry Glass, who had been seeking shelter inside the fort. Artifacts from this early medieval period were discovered during archaeological excavations in the 1990s. Among the finds, a small silver penny dating to the 9th century was discovered. This bears the name of Egbert of Wessex. Egbert was the king of Wessex in the southwest of England from 802 to 839 AD. Perhaps this coin was dropped by one of the marauding Vikings during their raid in 844, or maybe the coin just hints at trade links between Dunamace and southern England in the early medieval period. Other than the Viking raid of 844, the Rock of Dunamace does not appear again in the annals during the early medieval period. However, the site rose to prominence when it was taken by a new band of invaders, the Anglo-Normans. The Castle on the Rock The site was refortified after the Norman invasions of Ireland that had begun in 1169. Dunamace was part of the dowry paid by the King of Leinster, Dermot MacMurrah, when his daughter Aoife married Richard de Clare, the leader of the Norman invasions. De Clare, also known as Strongbow, would have immediately realised just how strategic the Rock of Dunamace was, and they quickly moved to secure it by refortifying the site. They strengthened the walls and added a strong gate tower to protect the stone hall on the summit. The man who appears to be responsible for the majority of the fortifications on the site was Myler Fitzhenry. He was a well-connected and renowned Norman adventurer. Indeed, his father was said to have been the illegitimate son of King Henry I, and Myler was the cousin of Norman warlord Raymond Le Gros and the famous chronicler Geraldus Cambrensis. Geraldus described Myler Fitzhenry as being a dark man with black stern eyes and keen face. In stature he was somewhat short, but he was very strong, with a square chest, thin flanks, bony arms and legs, and a sinewy rather than fleshy body. He was high-spirited, proud and brave to rashness. His only serious defect was his want of reverence to the church. Myler gained respect from both friend and foe for his bravery and daring in combat. In one famous exploit, he found himself deep in a forest, cut off from his men surrounded by Irish warriors. He fought his way out of the melee and made for home, 
However, his horse had been wounded by three Irish axes, and two more axes were embedded in his shield. Testament to the ferocity of the fighting. In another account, he was part of Raymond Le Gros' war band that attacked the Irish at Limerick in 1175. Myler Fitzhenry was one of the first to swim across the deep river Shannon, and he managed to hold off the Irish forces until the rest of the Norman army crossed. He was seen as the perfect man to hold the fiercely contested border lands of Leash. His success in Leash saw Myler Fitzhenry given the honour of becoming Justiciar of Ireland. He constructed Dublin Castle in 1204, but Myler regularly quarrelled with the other powerful Norman lords. After all his work at the Rock of Dunamace, Myler was enraged when it was given to Strongbow's son-in-law, William Marshall, in around 1208. Marshall was an even bigger personality in the medieval world than Fitzhenry. He was described at the time as being the greatest knight that ever lived. He had made his name through his skill in battles and tournaments, rising through the ranks of society from relative obscurity to become one of the most powerful men in medieval Europe. He gained vast lands and estates in Wales, Normandy, England and Ireland when the 43-year-old Marshal married the 17-year-old Isabel de Clare, daughter of Strongbow. As part of the dowry, Marshal inherited Dunamase and the lands of Leash, but Myler Fitzhenry refused to hand the lands over to William Marshall and rose in revolt. In the ensuing battle for control of Leinster, Myler was defeated and captured by Marshall's men, and he was forced to surrender his lands to William Marshall. As well as military skill, Marshall was an extremely astute and progressive man for his time. He made the most of his newly acquired estates in Ireland and brought many settlers from his lands in Wales and England to Ireland. These settlers were skilled in the new techniques of three-field crop rotation and spring and winter sowing. They also herded sheep on land that was unsuitable for cattle. Marshall made sure that every acre of his new Irish estates was profitable. He made Kilkenny his base, building the large castle on the River Nore. And under his guidance, new towns began to flourish in Kilkenny, Carlow, Wexford and Kildare. He also transformed New Ross in County Wexford into a major trading port. When he took the Rock of Dunamace into his possession, he expanded the work began by Myler Fitzhenry, strengthening the site into a formidable fortress. When you are ready, access the site through the wooden gate and follow the gravel path up the hill until the path splits into a fork. Stop here. The Outer Barbican This area of the Rock of Dunamace is called the Outer Barbican. Follow the path to the right and you will be able to see the impressive bank and ditch that surrounds the fort and forms the first line of defence. The defences of the castle cleverly used the steep contours of the rock outcrop as natural barriers to stop enemy attacks. Originally, this area would have been a large triangular-shaped enclosure 
formed by deep ditches cut through the rock on two sides and using the steep natural slope of the rock for the third. It is possible that a large wooden palisade and earthworks formed a strong defence on the inside of the ditches, making the outer barbican a daunting prospect for any attacking force. In peacetime, it is likely that this area would have been a busy, bustling place with traders, merchants and skilled craftsmen plying their trade. Many would have chosen to live close to great castle sites like Dunamace as the garrison would have offered steady trade and employment as well as security. When you are ready, make your way back to the main gravel path and continue up the slope through the outer barbican towards the barbican gate. The inner barbican. You are now standing at the barbican gate that separates the outer barbican from the inner barbican. It is thought that this gate was constructed slightly later than the other buildings on the complex and may date to the mid-13th century. Just outside the Barbican Gate, you can see that there is a very deep ditch with a bank built up inside it. At the time, there would not have been a gravel path allowing access into the Barbican Gate like there is today. Instead, during medieval times, a drawbridge would have been lowered and raised over this deep ditch to make it as difficult as possible for any enemy attacking forces. While the outer barbican would have slowed down the enemy attackers, this inner barbican would have ground them to a halt. Once the enemy had managed to get past the defences of the outer barbican, they would have been confronted with another steep-sided ditch and bank just in front of the high stone walls that protected the inner barbican. These stone walls would have been lined with archers loosing volleys of arrows from on top of the walls and through the narrow arrow loops or windows regularly positioned in the walls. Little remains of these once mighty walls today, but they must have been a daunting proposition for any attacking army in the 13th and 14th centuries. Another defensive feature of the walls around the Barbican Gate is the base batter. This is the slope you can see added to the base of the walls. The idea of the slope was that it would make the walls harder to undermine by digging underneath and the base batter helped to deflect any large stones the defenders flung down from on top of the walls into the front ranks of the attackers. Any of the attackers that managed to get as far as the strong Barbican gate were in for another nasty surprise. As you pass under the gate, look up and you will see a large square opening directly above you. This is known as a murder hole, and the defenders would have used it to pour boiling oil or fat down on top of the attackers. They would have also thrown large rocks or even buckets of excrement on top of the unfortunate attackers, anything they had at hand to make life unpleasant for the attacking army. Be careful as you pass underneath the murder hole. It is still in good working order. 
As you enter through the gate, you can see that the ground of the inner barbican is more steeply sloped than the outer barbican. It is highly unlikely that any buildings were constructed in this section of the castle. Instead, it would have been a large open area, a killing field where the enemy attackers would have been stranded in the open without cover, and at the mercy of the archers who now surrounded them on the high walls. When you are ready, climb the steep slope towards the twin towers of the gatehouse to enter the lower ward. Stop at the gatehouse. The lower ward. The gatehouse consisted of two rectangular towers flanking an entrance passage. This was probably originally guarded by a portcullis. A portcullis was a large iron-plated wooden grill that could be winched up and down. The only working portcullis to survive in Ireland can be seen today at Kerr Castle in County Tipperary. Archers would have lined the tops of the walls here and fired down onto any attackers that managed to get past the Barbican Gate. The strong high walls protecting the lower ward are now largely demolished, but they would have once formed an impenetrable barrier as tall as the gatehouse towers. As you pass through the gatehouse, follow the path to your right. You will pass by the remains of a small square room on your right-hand side. This is the remains of an earlier gatehouse that probably dates to Myler Fitzhenry's initial defences. As you can see, this gate was blocked up and the entrance was covered by a stone batter to protect this possible weak spot in the walls when William Marshall refortified the site in the early 13th century. Look to the top of the walls and you can clearly see the wall walks where sentries would have kept watch on the surrounding landscape and where archers would have been positioned with an excellent field of fire when defending the castle. The lower ward would have had a number of buildings, including accommodation for the troops and essential facilities such as forges and blacksmiths' workshops to ensure that weapons and armour were well maintained. Continue following the path to the right as it bends around the hill. You will cross over the foundations of a stone wall, marking your entrance into the upper ward. The Upper Ward The Upper Ward was the heart of the fortress and housed the most important structure on the site, the Great Hall. You can see stunning views of the surrounding landscape from this vantage point, giving you a real sense of just why it was such a strategically important site. As you follow the path through the Upper Ward, you can see the remains of a deep cistern or well that would have provided fresh water for the garrison. A protected water supply was essential to any fortress, to ensure that the defenders could withstand a protracted siege. When you are ready, 
continue along the gravel path through the elaborate doorway into what remains of the Great Hall. The Great Hall The Great Hall has changed dramatically from the medieval period. Even the doorway you have just passed through is not original. The Rock of Dunamace was acquired in the 18th century by John Parnell, great-grandfather of the famous Charles Stuart Parnell. It had become fashionable during the 18th century to refurbish what they saw as old romantic ruins, like castles, to serve as the setting for glamorous soirees and dinner parties. John Parnell took many features such as the stone lintelled doorway you have just passed through and the window mouldings from other later medieval sites in the area and brought them up to decorate his hall at Dunamace. As you enter the Great Hall, you can see a number of areas that have been rebuilt using red brick. A sure sign of the reconstructions, as brick was not used as a building material in Ireland until the 18th century. John Parnell died before he could complete his work at Dunamace, and the site was allowed to fall back into ruin by his son. Originally, the hall itself would have been a one-storey structure, with a two-storey solar added. The solar was the private chambers for the Lord and his family, and would have been their private residence at Dunamace. The hall was the big public room of the castle, the room where all the feasts were held, local courts were judged, and where the Lord would have conducted his business. Feasting was a very important part of the social life of the medieval world, and it was an opportunity for the Lord to show off. The medieval diet was rich in meat, and many animals would have found themselves spit-roasted over this fire. Not just things we are familiar with today, such as cattle, sheep, lambs or pig, they would have also eaten things like geese, swans, rabbits, pike, dolphins and even hedgehogs, which would have ensured that there was always a toothpick handy. The lowest job in the kitchen was the spit boy. It was their job to sit beside the scorching fire, slowly turning the spit heavy with meat for hours on end. Their working day usually started at around 4am to prepare the fire, and they could be roasting meat for the whole day during a feast. They were forbidden to leave their post, and they were also strictly forbidden to urinate near the fire, so it must have been an extremely uncomfortable job. The wealthier guests would have eaten off fine pewter plates, whereas the less wealthy guests would have eaten off a trencher. A trencher was usually a stale crust of bread. This would have absorbed all of the juices and gravy from the food, and the privileged guests would have eaten the upper part of this crust. The lower part of the crust was often given to the beggars at the gates, leading to the expression about wealthy people being the upper crust. In time, these stale crusts were replaced by square wooden plates. This in turn gave us our expression to eat a square meal. 
Typically, a castle's great hall in the medieval period would have been lavishly furnished, with large and colourful tapestries hanging from the walls, displaying the wealth and taste of the lord. As well as decoration, these thick woolen tapestries would have also served as a form of basic insulation, keeping the great hall both illuminated and warm. However, the Rock of Donamace may have been more of a military fortress than a comfortable lordly residence, and may have been more reserved or Spartan in appearance. Exit the Great Hall when you are ready through the door you entered, and follow the path to the left until you come to the steel railings. As you follow the path towards the railings, you exit the upper ward by stepping over the low stone foundations of a wall that divided the upper from the lower ward. At the railings, an interesting feature of the lower ward can still be seen today. The postern gate is located along the walls of the lower ward to the south of the gatehouse. The postern gate at the Rock of Dunamace was an easily defended entry point to the lower ward. The steep incline below the gate meant that it was probably only used in times of conflict. Its narrow doorway would have been easily defended, but would also have allowed the defenders to launch sorties against the rear of unwitting attackers. In the early 14th century, Norman control in the Midlands began to weaken and crumble under the relentless pressure of the local Omora clan. The castle at the Rock of Dunamace was recorded as being burned in 1323, which must have severely weakened the defences. The Omoras finally managed to seize Dunamace in 1330, but they chose to leave the site unoccupied. The castle then fell into disrepair, and then much of the fortress was deliberately destroyed, often attributed to Colonel Hewson, one of Oliver Cromwell's officers, during Cromwell's invasion of Ireland in the middle of the 17th century. Although no records of this survive in Cromwell's accounts and the damage may have occurred much later. As you continue along the path, you can see a small circular stone feature beside the gatehouse. This is the remains of a small lime kiln and it marks the end of the site. This feature probably dates to the 19th century. The stones were taken from the crumbling walls and heated in kilns like this by local farmers to create unslaked lime, which was then added to the fields to help neutralise the acidity of the soil and increase fertility. So piece by piece, this once mighty stronghold was broken down, leaving only the echoes of its greatness that we find today.